0: My train. Oh, I'm so glad you brought
1: your trains. This is Grayson. And uh, how old are you?
0: This is train.
1: Yeah, you have trains. How old are you? Yep. Yep. I don't think that's an age. <laughs> do you like trains? Yeah. Do you have lots of trains?
0: Yeah, I do want two.
1: You brought two. Yeah. Do you have what you told me before? You have ten trains at home. You love trains. I
0: brought two trains.
1: Yeah, you brought two trains with you, and they have magnets on them, don't they? Yeah. Do you go to school? Yes. Where do you go to school? I
0: go to preschool.
1: Yes. You go to preschool. Do you go here to preschool? Yeah. Yeah. You spend a lot of time here, don't you? Yeah. 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 We like having you here.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What if I told you that this little boy is the son of God? Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> Y'all going? Uh. His big sister is going. Uh. This is the remarkable thing about. The incarnation is that little children like Grayson, little children we see running around, little babies, the little children who were lighting the Advent wreath and the kids we see here in Sunday school and children's church and Wednesday nights. God was one of those little children. I I think that's hard for us to grasp because they're just little children. Thank you. He's been great three times today. He's still with me. (laughs) See, the thing about the incarnation is that it reveals the otherness of God. We think of the otherness of God, we tend to think of God as big, and He certainly is. When we think of God being other than, we think of him being sovereign and almighty and the creator of all, and and he certainly is all of that. But what's so fascinating is that when God reveals himself most clearly, it's not revealing how big he is, but how small he's willing to become. An egg, an embryo, a little baby that is born into the world, just like you and I are born into the world. It's mind-boggling. There is something about the incarnation that reveals this otherness of God and and part of the parts of the nature of God that I think we we miss. For one thing, it tells us that God is humble. And, and that, that almost sounds irreverent to say that God is humble. He calls us to be humble, but not him. And yet everything about this event reveals his humility. Where Jesus is born, to whom Jesus is born, where he lives, what he does in his life... All of this, it it screams humility. Philip Yancey says that up until the scriptures, in most cultures, in most writings, the word humble is a negative word. It's not a word to admire. It's a word to shun. And God changes that. And it's not even just how, it's not even just... The birth of Christ and his circumstances. You think about the the events leading up to it. And the angel appearing to Mary. God could have commanded Mary to do this and forced her to do it. But you get the sense that the angel comes to ask her if she would like to be a part of this. Here's God's plan. Here's what God wants to do. What do you think, Mary? Now you understand it's going to mean great joy and deep sorrow it's going to mean people are going to misinterpret you and they're going to misunderstand you and they're going to have all kinds of thoughts about you because even if you tell them the truth, who's going to believe you? So Mary, what do you think? Give it a shot. There is this humility even in approaching Mary and you see it in Joseph too. This angel appears to Joseph in a dream. He doesn't strong-arm Joseph. Here's Joseph caught between a rock and a hard place, trying to figure out what to do with Mary. And the angel comes and explains to Joseph what's happened. And it continually amazes me that he says, okay. But despite the fact that God says, this is what I really want you to do, Joseph, he has the freedom to say no. Because he too is going to live... ...with all kinds of whispers. All kinds of things are going to happen. People are going to say things. His life is going to be difficult. It's going to be exciting, but it's going to be difficult. And God comes in humility to him. J.B. Phillips says, if we were to make this up... ...if it were our idea, how to be the do the incarnation... ...we would do one of two things... We would either create, have this being come that was superhuman and only appeared to be human, but really was God and just sort of pretending to be human. Kind of like Superman, you know, Superman's not really a human being. Superman is from Krypton. He pretends to be a human being. He takes off his glasses and no one recognizes him anymore, right? (laughs) What is that about? That is just nuts. But I know none of you know who I am now. You're like, who is that up there? (laughs) Oh, okay, now I got it. All right, good. But I digress, sorry. Um, But then we'd have this being who would look like a human being, but would just have all this power and not really be human. Or we would create a real human being, but he'd be so holy, so super, super spiritual, in the sense that we, you know, envision that, that we have no connection with them at all. It'd be the kind of person who sits on the top of a a hill, you know, the image of the guru on top of the hill that you climb up and go to for advice, but really has no connection to real people. And yet here is God coming to us in a real human being, a baby. And he goes through all the things that we go through, all the ups and the downs, the good and bad of being human. He experiences all of it. The writer of Hebrews says that we have a high priest who, who understands what we go through. And that sort of changes a little bit of how we address, how we approach God about some of our struggles. Because we want to say to God, well, I, you know, I know I'm really wrestling with, with manipulating people, but Lord, you just don't understand how it is. Yes, I do. Lord, you know, I'm really wrestling with materialism and greed, but you don't, you don't really understand what that means. Yeah, I do. Lord, you know, I, I really want to get back at this person who hurt me. I need to. And you just don't get it, what it's like to be hurt like that. Yeah, I do. He understands. He goes through all the things we go through. I imagine there were many times in the carpenter shop and he smashed his finger with the hammer. And it hurt. Real pain, you know, not just fake pain. It really hurt. You know, someone was talking about how, you know, Jesus as a as a child, you know, he had to learn his letters and his numbers. He had to he had to learn uh science. He had he had to learn history. He he played with his friends. Maybe there was a little girl down the street that had a crush on him. Vice versa? He was human. Lewis says that he said he cannot imagine that, that there were weren't times when, when Jesus had questions that he didn't know the answers to. He said, in fact, if he didn't have that, then he wasn't really human. And he says that when Jesus asks as an adult, who touched me, it's because he really wants to know. He is human. All of the fragility of being human, all of, of the stuff that we have to wrestle with, Jesus wrestled with it. But Jesus wasn't just, it's not just that he was human, it's that he, he identifies with us in a way that we would typically probably avoid you know there is a sense in which which jesus comes for the underdogs of the world now as americans we have a tendency to to root for underdogs you know we love the stories of people who are born into poverty and and somehow pick themselves up by their bootstraps and make a great success of their lives as we judge that and and we cheer that and we root for that and we talk about underdogs a lot in sports and underdogs are our teams or people who have virtually no chance of winning. Right now in college basketball, the University of Kentucky has by far the best basketball team in the country. They have the most talent. And I don't think there's anyone who would who's thinking they're going to lose a game this year. Every team that plays them is going to be an underdog. And if any team beats them, we will call it either a fluke or a miracle. Because that's way it is with underdogs. And here is God, who is the creator of all, the ruler of all, the sovereign of all. Everyone, every opposition to him, every opponent is an underdog. He wins every time. Except that he chooses to be the underdog. He chooses to limit himself. He chooses to come in human flesh. He chooses to live like you and me. Paul says that he humbles himself and takes on the nature of a servant, becoming human. He's for us. And it's not just that Jesus takes on the role of an underdog. His whole mission in life is the underdogs of the world. You know, Luke 4 is sort of Jesus' mission statement where he talks about that he's in the synagogue and he pulls out Isaiah 61 that we just read. And he reads a version of that where he talks about being for the poor and the heartbroken and the down and downhearted. And he talks about freedom for prisoners and of sight for the blind and set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All of this is about the people of the world that everyone else ignores and pushes to the margins, the vulnerable, the weak, the powerless. Jesus says, I'm about them because everybody else ignores them. Everyone else says they're insignificant, they're unimportant, but not me. What we see is what I I think is Philip Yancey that talks about the incarnation and this idea of God being the underdog and coming for the underdogs. We have this sense of it makes God approachable. You know, we think about how we want motivating people. More often than not we tend to motivate by fear. We do that because it works, right? If you're afraid of being caught, we obey the law. We don't drive 85 in a 60 speed limit. Cuz we're never sure who's going to be waiting in the median when we come around the next turn. We we obey our parents and people in authority because we don't want to get in trouble. We, we fear failure, so we study for tests and we turn in our papers. At least that's the theory, right? And because we're afraid to fail. Fear motivates and we use it all the time and, and it's a part of our culture. But fear creates distance. And God's about being approachable. There's no doubt in the scriptures, God talks about his greatness, and he talks about being in awe of him, and he gives warnings. But when God reveals himself most clearly through his son, it's not through fear. But it's creating an atmosphere of approachability. I was pondering that idea this week, and I I thought back to when I was in junior high, 6th, 7th, 8th grade, and... I don't know how to describe my science teacher other than to say the man was crazy. Uh, I mean, I I have a lot more sympathy for him now, uh, teaching junior high students. But, I mean, he was crazy, out of control. He'd yell at us. He'd throw things at us. He'd kick kids out of class. I remember one day he slammed a kid up against a locker and, you know, held him there as he yelled in his face. Probably things you couldn't get away with today, but you could I said, earlier, I said 30 years ago. I'm thinking, no, I guess it's been more than that, hasn't it? Um, but let's not do talk about that. But, you know, he was nuts. And he intimidated us. And the whole aura of his classroom was fear. But across the hall was my social studies teacher. And he had a different perspective of how he ran his class. You know, he he was firm with us. But it was all about... Trying to to not intimidate us, but to help us open up to learn. And so he would do all kinds of engaging activities. We did historical reenactments, and we played Jeopardy, and we did political debates, and we made recordings, even video recordings, in a day where that was not a common thing to do. And he loved for us to ask him questions. He wanted to become connected to us, and we'd talk about things that we like to talk about. I remember many days, especially in September, as the uh, baseball pennant race was drawing to a close, and he loved baseball. We'd spend 10, 15 minutes talking about baseball because it was something he knew we were, many of us were interested in. It's really not a wonder that I hated science and I loved social studies. And I suspect there were some interesting conversations in the faculty lounge. You know, As saying to him, Schmidt, you're being way too easy on these kids. You're being you're way too approachable. You're letting them get away with way too much. And he said, I know it's a risk, but it's worth it. And I suspect there are times where, I don't know, maybe the angelic beings look at God and say, wow, you're... You're being way too friendly with these human beings. You know what they've done. You know what they can do, right? And God says, I know it's a risk, but one of the things the incarnation teaches us is it reminds us that God is the cosmic risk taker. Everything about God God does is, is rooted in his willingness, his passion to take risk. He creates what a risk that is. He identifies himself with fragile, fallible people like Abraham and Noah and the Israelites. And he says to them, Look, I'm going I'm to take you, you slaves, I'm going to make you my people, and I'm going to let the rest of the world understand me through you. And now he says that about the church. Talk about taking a risk. But that's who God is. God is the ultimate cosmic risk taker. I think one of the reasons we may struggle with incarnation, really wrapping our minds around it, is because something in the back of our minds may prefer distance than closeness with God. I mean, we love to talk about the fact that God is humble and he's approachable and, and, and he is for the underdog of the world. But if God is that close to us, then there's no place we can go to avoid him. And we kind of have to be on our best behavior all the time. If God is distant, then we really only have to think about God when we come to places like this or when we read our Bible or say a few prayers, and then we can do whatever we want because God's out there and we're here, and, and we, some, sometimes that distance is kind of nice. But God loves us too much to allow that, us to live with that distance. But it's hard for us to grasp that. I love the Christmas carol, Away in a Manger. It's one of my favorites. But when we sing the second verse, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but poor little, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Really? If that's true, that's not a baby in that manger, that's a doll. Because babies cry. Babies cry about lots of things. In fact, there are times where you can't figure out why the baby is crying, and you do everything in your power to try to figure it out, and you can't. It's what babies do. But I think we, we write those kinds of things because, quite frankly, God in flesh is, is pretty hard to grasp. It's, it's like a lot of the paintings you see, I think, typically come out of the Renaissance era where painting, pictures of Jesus and pictures even of Mary, where they have that little glow aura on their heads that sets them apart as holy. It's hard for us to truly envision Jesus like us. But the whole root of the incarnation, the whole root of our faith is that he is. He is like us. You know, earlier this week, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge came to uh, New York City. And they did what royals do when you make these kinds of visits. You know, they they went to the places of the people of power and wealth and fame. You know, spent time with the president and the White House, or probably in New York. He came to New York for, to see them, which is something. They, they visited. They... Um, you know, the vice president, he spent time with the Clintons. He went to the World Bank. They went to the World Bank and they went to a professional basketball game and rubbed shoulders with Beyonce and Jay-Z and, you know, all these famous people. And people, crowds stood outside their apartment building, the hotel where they stayed. And when every time they entered and exited, they cheered and swooned. And every time they get in and out of a car, they cheered and swooned. And even when Kate went to... Uh, preschool in harlem it was a huge event i was wondering what would happen what do you think people's response would be if they borrowed someone's car and they put on some jeans and sweatshirts and they went to the local walmart and they went in got a cart and just started making their way around the store you know grab some scientist medicine a little yogurt a couple of boxes of lucky charms They went to the deli, get, you know, pound and a half of salami, half a cup of potato salad. And they go and they wait in the line for the next checker to process their order. And, you know, then I'm wondering, so would the guy at the door ask to see their receipt when they came out like he does a lot of other people? I think we'd go, what's going on here? We'd like the fact that maybe they would be hang out with common people But the whole point of why we want to see them is that they're famous. They're royalty. Who's going to stand outside a hotel and cheer us when we walk out and take pictures? Who cares? The whole point is we know what to do with people who act like royalty. We don't know what to do with people who are royalty and act like commoners. It jars us. And yet here is God, the ultimate royalty in human flesh. Vulnerable. Humble. Fully human. And the reason God does all of this because we're sinners. The angel tells Matthew, when this child is born, you name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's why. That's why God comes in human flesh. Because we are sinners who need redeeming. We're lost. We're broken. We're on our way to eternal death. And God loves us. And he loves us so much, he is willing to be born into this world, to take on human flesh, so that we might know the depths of his love for us, and so that we might have a savior Can redeem us. He doesn't come because we're so awesome. He comes because we're so needy. And that's the heart of the incarnation. Today's question was Jesus just like every other baby? Yes and no. No, he is God. But yes, he is just like you and me, as incomprehensible as that is for us. He's human, real. Just like we are. I love the way Mark Lowry describes Mary's attempt to wrestle with this. Her attempt to understand this little child that she has given birth to, she's holding. Yes, yeah, ask this question over and over again, Mary. Did you know,
0: Mary? Did you know that your baby boy? Would soon deliver you Mary did you know that your baby boy would give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would calm a storm with his hand? Did you know that, oh, that your baby has walked where angels trod and when you kissed your little baby you kissed the face of God the blind will see the deaf will hear the dead will live again the lame will leave, the mute will speak, the praises of the Your baby boy Is Lord of all creation Mary did you know That your baby boy Would one day heal The nations Did you know know That your baby boy Is heaven's heaven's perfect perfect lamb? lamb This child that you are holding it's the great. great. Uh-huh.
1: for us to take just a moment of silence to ponder God in flesh what that means for you and for me